Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to go ahead and just dive right into the passage this morning. We're picking up, actually, where we left off last Sunday in Matthew chapter 16 as I preached a message entitled, The Greatest Question That Was Ever Asked, when Jesus said in verse number 15, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This isn't just a question that was one time recorded in Scripture for a single group of people. This is a question, I believe... That is something recorded for every human being of all time. Who do you say that Jesus is? For we know that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. There are no, there have many been people try to impersonate him and duplicate him, but they will all fall short because Jesus is our only hope. He is our only Savior. And today we pick up at the answer where Paul, or where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the only way we can answer that question and find eternal salvation out of it. But beginning in verse number 16 and reading through the end of the chapter in verse number 28, Um, It says this, Simon Peter answered, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. And then we see a very significant shift in the tone of Matthew's writing here in verse number 21. From then on, or from this point forward, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes to be killed and to be raised the third day. Then Peter, who just a few verses ago had said, you are the son of the living God and he's the rock and all of this stuff. We already see the rock beginning to waver. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and he told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but you're thinking about human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Probably one of the toughest descriptions of what a disciple should look like in verse 24. Verse number 25, whoever wants to save his life or his soul will lose it, but whoever loses his life or his soul because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life, loses his soul? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and, he will be re- and they will be rewarded, each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would illuminate us to truth. Be our teacher today. God, may you be glorified. Jesus, may you be lifted high. I pray, Father, as your messenger, that I would be hindered from saying anything that would hinder your message from going forth today as you see fit. Feed us as your church today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And God's people said, amen. 
Have you ever been uh, just like minding your own business? which we don't do very good. Uh, we don't do a very good job of doing that anymore in today's culture of social media and all that stuff, right? Have you ever been doing a good job just minding your own business one night, just watching TV, just relaxing, kick back on the couch, you know, just, just you know, waiting for the day to end and get ready for the next day, and an ad for your favorite restaurant comes across the screen. You ever had that happen before you? And they got this new dish or this new item or this new burger. And let me tell you, it looks like the burger to beat all burgers. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's dripping. It's juicy. It is fantastic. Oh, by the way, if you didn't eat breakfast before you came today, God help you because you're going to be hungry by the time this is over with. I mean, it just looks amazing. And immediately you find yourself for some reason, launched out of the couch, finding your shoes and your keys to rush off to go grab that, right? Or if you say, no, I'm going to show more willpower than that, you spend the rest of the night thinking about how can I get there for lunch the next day, right? Anybody else done that before? Um, you can tell that I do that quite often, right? I don't show a whole lot of restraint there, right? Um, but then when you get there, whether you ran out that night or whether you go out there for lunch the next day and you go through the drive-thru or you go inside and you say, I want that beautiful, juicy, big flame broiled burger goodness right there. And you open up that brown, greasy sack and it doesn't look anything like that picture right there. <laughs> Nothing like that picture. You're like, are you sure that I ordered, I ordered the, I ordered that burger. And they're like, yeah, that's it. And I'm like, okay. All right. Because here's the thing, advertisers have realized that the art of illusion is important to them when it comes to their advertising. So just look at these ex examples of, of things uh, against reality, okay? You have the McDonald's Big Mac. Go ahead and throw that one there up on the screen. The McDonald's Big Mac over here on the corner there. You see the Big Mac looks beautiful in the advertisements, but it's like half an inch shorter and a little bit nastier. And if you've ever gotten a Big Mac, you have to dig it out of all the lettuce that's like inside of it. It's kind of like they, they're like, I know you wanted a burger, but we really want you to have a salad. So we're going to just sneak it in there, right? Um, and then like Taco Bell. Anybody like Taco Bell? The tacos always look beautiful, always crispy, never, you know, nothing, nothing ever wrong with them. And, and look at that taco. It's just, it's sad. Like the meat is not even the same color. Is it even meat? We don't even know. And we got a guy in here who works at Taco Bell shaking his head. No, it's not even meat. So that's scary. <laughs> Um, uh, we're not, to protect your, your, your name, we're not going to say your name on, on screen, okay? The Burger King Whopper leaves you a little underwhelmed, doesn't it? And the McDonald's Angus Deluxe 2, what is that? The third pounder. Doesn't that sound beautiful? It's not as beautiful when you look at it there, is it? it I mean, it, it's like where in the world is, is everything. We've all succumbed to this, right? We've all seen that disappointment. And, but the thing is, is we've all come to just expect it now. We've all come to just expect that what people are giving us is not necessarily reality. The best one for me are the pizza commercials. You know where this disembodied hand shows up on the screen and there's this big, beautiful pizza that's laid out for everybody to see. And then all of a sudden, you know, it pulls out and there's this big stringy cheese and it just looks beautiful and, and, and wonderful and everything like that. How many of that have you ever had that happen in your life, in real life, when you get that home, right? Uh, you go and get the hot and ready, and you sit down, and you're waiting for that big stringy cheese of, of, of goodness and everything to pour out, and it never does. Now, I've eaten my fair share of pizzas in my life, and I can count the number of times that this picture has ever happened in reality on an amputated hand, okay? It just doesn't happen. So, but you can have this happen if you want to. Just go home and add a little bit of glue into the cheese, because that's what the advertisers do to get it to string out. They've discovered tricks of the trade to make their food look so appetizing, but it's far from edible. 
Okay? So here's a couple of things that they do. Uh, look at these pancakes, if you would. These pancakes look beautiful, don't they? Except for the fact that it's got um, motor oil instead of syrup on it. You see, because the syrup soaks right into the pancakes. You ever wonder why it doesn't look that good when you try to eat your pancakes? That's because, you know, you're not eating it with the right topping. You just got to get some pins oil out, um, and it'll look beautiful. Um, those perfectly browned and grilled burgers that you see on TV... Those browned burgers are not actually cooked. They're raw, and they've had black shoe polish rubbed on them to make them look beautifully, uh, beautifully done. Our, I'm going to try to get our, our I guess our, uh, our audio guy really likes pancakes. All right, so uh, there we go. We got that. That's actually a raw burger with black shoe polish put on it. Um, that all-natural ice cream that looks so good when they roll it out, it's actually just mashed potatoes with a little bit of glue mixed in with it uh, so that it rolls out and looks so, so good and frosted and everything for you, okay? Uh, anybody like cake? Like cake? Uh, cake that looks so good with those, that icing, anybody cake makers that can't get that, that layer of icing between the layers to look so fluffy? Just add some cardboard there and just pipe some icing in there and it'll always look picture perfect. Maybe a little bit difficult to get down at the wedding, but you know, whatever. Um, then my favorite is the cereal. I always wonder why my cereal never looked as good swimming in, the, in my milk as it did on TV. Well, that's because I'm not using enough glue uh, to put in my milk. I'm not even, they don't even put it in the bowl. They just, put a, they just you know, make it look really, really nice, okay? Um, that, they say, well, that's, none of that's healthy. That's why I eat organic, Pastor. That's why I just eat fruits and vegetables. Well, guess what? Fruits and vegetables in their natural state aren't appetizing looking enough, so they have to spray shellac on them, like deodorant and things like that to make them look shiny. Grocery stores can't even keep up with the advertising world anymore, so they've had to start putting edible wax on the fruit that you eat so that it looks shiny like it does on TV, right? See, these are the tricks of the trade as old as advertising itself, the truth is that we hardly ever see an image today that's given to us of a product or something that we desire that hasn't already been doctored, altered, enhanced, filtered, or edited, yet for some reason we still build our expectations on the illusion, don't we? We still think that's what it should look like. And the rise of social media has given us this new phenomenon called the lifestyle influencer. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about, but if you're on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, you see people that are now making hand over fist money trying to project what the good life is supposed to look like. Health and fitness experts and fashion, fashionistas and, and all these things, and they show you here's what the here's what the good life should look like and here's how this product will make your face glow and all of these things, and they don't show you the 100,000 Pictures that didn't make the cut for that one that looked just perfect with the perfect lighting and everything set up just exactly the way it should be. They have all these perfect filtered selfies to convey a certain lifestyle that followers hope to obtain in their life and hardly any of it is ever real. Again, we're presented with ideas of what life should be and all of those presentations of life are doctored, edited, manipulated, or filtered in some way, shape, or form, which is why we spend most of our lives struggling with the reality and the feeling that I'm not living life good enough or I have been given, I have not been given a fair shake in life and we're left disillusioned with things. And this is why scripture, to me, is such a breath of fresh air. Because scripture never pulls any punches, does it? The word of God is always just brass knuckles, raw, unfiltered, and just kind of tells you how it is. This is how you can know that the word of God has been inspired by God. 
is because the writers that God inspired to put pen to paper would never say the things about themselves or reveal the things about themselves that the word reveals about them on their own. Because they wanted to filter things just as much too. You would never find King David allowing some of the things written in First and Second Samuel if God had not ordained that they'd been in there. Scripture gives us an unfiltered view of humanity. It gives us an unfiltered view of what sin really gets us. But thank God it also gives us an unfiltered view of the glory of God and the forgiveness of God and the love and the grace and the mercy of God who was willing to send his only begotten son to a brutalizing cross and die a death that none of us could imagine but all of us deserve so that we could have something, the good life that we don't deserve. You see, this is why Jesus is such a breath of fresh air as well. Because he's so incomprehensibly unique in who he is and what he did and how he ministered. I listened to a podcast this week where a guy who is going through this process of deconstruction, which is a big buzzword right now today in church circles, where a guy who had been famously going through it arrogantly said that Jesus was simply just a celebrity and nothing more. And that's why people have followed him for 2,000 plus years. Here's the thing about Jesus. Yes, Jesus has been known worldwide for 2,000 plus years. He's probably the most famous celebrity you can find out there. But if Jesus was just a celebrity, his, he built his celebrity totally backwards from anybody else. He did not follow the, the formula to do it. And his celebrity or his, the knowledge and his fame has grown more than any other celebrity. And I'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening on podcasts and can't see what I'm doing. He grew his celebrity. To call Jesus just a celebrity is blasphemous. He's not a celebrity. He's our savior. In our text today, we see that we have an unfiltered discussion between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has rolled into the town of Caesarea Philippi. And I'm telling you, after all of his miracles and after all the things he'd done in feeding the 5,000, healing the lame, making the blind to see, his stock was rising and people were thinking things about him. He was a celebrity at that time. But even in his celebrity status, in verses 13 through 15, we talked about this last Sunday. Jesus says, who does everybody think I am? Or what do they think of me here in town right now? And they're all like, well, they think you're John the Baptist. They think, they think you're just John the Baptist and you've shaved up and you've, you know, gotten all that crusty, you know, uh, you know honey and, you know, locust wings out of your beard and stuff. And they, you know, that, that you've just cleaned up your act and you're John the Baptist. Or they think that you're Elijah the prophet who's been brought back down to earth. Or that you're Jeremiah because of your compassion that you've been, uh, that you've been allowed to come back down to minister and to prophesy again. None of them thought that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And then when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but who do you, the ones who have been with me, the ones who know my heart, the ones who know me, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter stands up in response of all of the other disciples and says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Folks, he's not a celebrity. He's not just a prophet, as good as prophets were. He's not just John the Baptist, as great as John the Baptist was and as significant as his purpose was. Jesus is different. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he is our only hope. And this is where we were. His celebrity had risen, but guess what's getting ready to happen? In verse 21, as we saw, the tone is going to change. He says, from then on, Jesus begins to tell his disciples how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die. And even Peter, the one who just said... Jesus, that, that's not going to happen. That's not the way this story goes. You're the conqueror. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're not going to die. We're not going to let that happen. 
Jesus doesn't like sugarcoat anything. He doesn't put shellac on anything. He's not putting glue in his message to make it more palatable. Jesus just simply says out, this is what it takes for mankind to be redeemed because this is how disgusting and how deadly sin is and this is what it's gonna cost for it to be redeemed according to God the Father and this is what I'm going to do and that's how I'll become king. And if you follow me, you will suffer much like I did. Jesus' messages to people were not necessarily palatable messages. The things that he did, making the lame to walk and feeding 5,000 and making blind people see, that's so palatable and it gains attention. But the words that spewed out of Jesus' mouth was truth that people just couldn't bear and just couldn't hear a lot of times. So Jesus gives us this, this, this almost rolls out this brochure, or if you will, an informational understanding of what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the passage that we look at over the next two weeks. This morning, we'll cover two things of five points, and next Sunday, we'll cover the other three. And I beg you and I urge you to come back next Sunday because that's where things really begin to take off. But this morning, I want to look at a couple of things that we have to understand about the disciple life, that the disciple life doesn't look like it would in a magazine or a catalog or on, an, or, on, uh, or on a website trying to sell you a bill of goods. The disciple life is difficult. The disciple life is tough. The disciple life requires a sacrifice. But it's still the best life you could ever live. Did you catch this? In a world where we're constantly influenced by influencers and people trying to pitch us an idea of what life and luxury should look like and comfort should look like, and that comprises what the, what the good life is, Jesus pitches us an idea that, no, I'm going to pitch you a life that's tough. It's the road less traveled by. It's a narrow way. It will be filled with self-denial, with sacrifice, with giving of yourself, sometimes till it hurts, but it's still the best life you can ever live. And so I want to look at that this morning. It's serious. There's work involved. There's service. There's sacrifice. There's self-denial. And as we have seen so many times in history and currently from some of the stories that we are getting from Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other parts of the world, the call to the disciple life is also dangerous. And at times the call to the disciple life can be lonely. That old hymn that says, though none go with me, still I will follow him. Still rings true in 2021. But at all times, the call to the disciple life is a call to a great life with a great future and a great hope. So I want to look this morning at what the disciple lives in light of. Number one, the disciple lives in light of a great proclamation. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you live in light of a great proclamation. What is a proclamation? It's a statement of my belief. It's a statement of my values. It's a statement of what drives me and what motivates me. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. We see, first of all, Peter, or Peter makes this proclamation of his faith in Jesus Christ. When we see in verse number 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So when Peter answered this question, he's not only telling Jesus what he thought of Christ in comparison to what all the other people did. Now, this would have been an excellent opportunity for Peter to try to gain some gold stars and some points of credit and to kind of like, you know, suck up to the teacher and be like the teacher's pet here. Oh, everybody says you're this, but let me tell you what I think. I think you're the greatest. I don't get that that's what Peter is saying at this point. 
Peter is making a statement of faith, a proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ at this moment when he says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God. And this wasn't the only time that we see this proclamation of faith from the disciples in scripture. If you go back to the book of John in chapter, in chapter 6, we see this account from earlier on in Jesus' ministry. And we know this one well because we talk about it a lot. When Jesus fed the 5,000 people, and we know too that the way they counted back then, it was probably more like 10 to possibly 15,000 people that he fed. With just, help me out, if you went to Sunday school, if you've been in Sunday school for any amount of time, what did Jesus use to do this? Two fish and five loaves. All right, two fish and five loaves from one little boy. Okay? Two fish and five loaves don't feed five to 10,000 people. It's not going to feed me. Okay? I'm going to want more. I'm going to want some pizza with some gluey cheese. And thrown in with that. Jesus takes this and he blesses it. And a miracle is performed. And 5,000 to 15,000 possible people are filled to the brim. And there are 12 basketfuls left over of this. It's a famous miracle. And it was gaining, gaining Jesus a whole lot of credit. And it gained him a whole lot of fame. Because the next morning, he gets in a boat. And he's all the way over on the other side of the sea. And people have tracked him down and found him. And they are hungry. And this time, they brought their own baskets ready to be filled. And they're like, hey, do that food trick again. It's time for breakfast. This time, could you do some bacon and eggs? Well, no bacon because it's, you know, Jewish diet. But could we have some of that? And that's when Jesus sits them down and says, okay, I fed you physically. Now it's time for you to hear something spiritually. And he begins to talk about not eating fish and loaves or bacon and eggs. And he starts talking about suffering for the name of Jesus Christ and drinking his blood and eating his body and talking about communion and all of these things from a spiritual, spe spiritual standpoint. And by the time all of this is over with in John chapter 6, the Bible says everyone begins to walk away. They're like, okay, it was great to have lunch yesterday, but I think I'm going to go to breakfast elsewhere. And they say specifically in John chapter 6, they say this is too hard. This is kind of one of those things that as a disciple we all come to. This is hard. It's wonderful to know that as a Christian, we can know without fear that when we die, heaven will be our home. But living for Jesus is not easy. It's not. The Bible never promises us smooth sailing in this life. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, that's why we have the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted because it's reminding us that as we live this disciple life that is so antithetical to the way our flesh tells us to live, we're going to come up against hard times and hard times of doubt and seasons of wondering, is this the right thing? And here's what Jesus does in John chapter 6, verse, 80, uh, verse 68. Jesus looks at him and he says, everybody's gone except for the 12 disciples. Everybody that had showed up, they left. They said, this is too hard. We're not following you. And the 12 disciples that had been originally followed him, he looks back at them and he says, are you going to leave me too? And in verse number 68, Simon Peter answered the Lord, Lord, to who are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In each instance, both in Matthew chapter 16 and in John chapter 6, there was no reasonable excuse for the disciples to stick with Jesus if they were looking for the good life. 
if they were looking for an easy life, if they were looking for status quo. But through the eyes of faith, there was no possible way that they could abandon the Messiah. They knew that even though it would take them through valleys deep and through places, the valleys of the shadow of death, they knew that as long as his rod and his staff was with me, there would be no reason to fear. See, because to be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires a faith in him. It requires a proclamation of faith that we believe you, Jesus. And I ask you this this morning. As a disciple of Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've called on him to be your Savior and placed your saving faith in him, is that the last time you made a proclamation of faith in Christ? I'm not asking, have you been saved multiple times? Because there's only one time that we can be saved. I'm saying, how many times have you revisited that faith where you said, Jesus is all I need? Because it can be very difficult sometimes to keep that in the forefront of our minds just naturally because it's not natural for us to do that. Our natural bend in the flesh is to deviate from having our eyes on Christ. That's why we see Peter so many times, man, going up and down because he made such a bold proclamation of faith. It gets tested boldly, walking on the water, you know, being the one that cuts off an ear in the garden. There's so many times when he just ebbed and flowed with this. And I think this teaches us something important. Take heart. If you're in a moment where you're saying, God, I'm struggling. Know that Peter, Petros, the rock, he suffered too. And he struggled too. And he doubted too. God can handle that because the disciple life is a life of a great proclamation. And for us, we have to revisit that proclamation many times in our journey of faith. But there's also a proclamation that we see that Peter not only makes, but we also see a proclamation that's made from from the Father about Christ. Look at verse number 17. Jesus responded, blessed are you or happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now note this is very, very, very important doctrinally. He says that you didn't come up with this idea about me being the Messiah on your own. You didn't just sit down and look at and and line out a pros and cons list and say, okay, Jesus is the one I'm going to go with. He said the Father God in heaven revealed this to you. When you saw my miracles, you weren't just seeing proof that I'm the Messiah. You were seeing God's testament to my kinship to him. You were seeing God's testament and his agreement in the entire trinity, agreeing on the fact that I am the son of God. And you, in your spirit, have accepted the word of the Lord. And folks, that's what salvation is. If you're just following a Jesus that somebody painted a picture for you and says, this is what Jesus really was and this is what he'll do for you, until God himself, until you hear the voice of the Lord saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Follow him. Do what he says. This must be a deal, not just with a church, not with a person, not with a grandma or a grandpa or someone compelling you to come to know Christ. Salvation is between you and God. To be a disciple requires faith. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All of those are personal pronouns. You. It's not something I inherit. It's not something I'm just convinced to. It's something I am convicted from God above that I need. God the Father made the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Jesus says that Peter made this statement because God 
had told him. See, God will always point us to his son. The Son will always point us to God. The Holy Spirit will always point us to God and the Trinity. That's how the Trinity works. They never disagree. They never contradict. They never pull us from the other parts of the Trinity. God is always promoting His Son. The Son will always promote God. Why? Because Jesus is the true north of the Christian faith. Anytime you begin to wonder, anytime you begin to doubt, turn to Jesus. He's the true north. He's the one who gets our bearings straight again. To be truly saved, we must proclaim that Jesus is what I need. Even God the Father proclaimed the Messiahship of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, the day Jesus was baptized, when he, the Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and God the Father's voice. All aspects of the Trinity are there and present at that scene. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And people could audibly hear the voice of God at that moment. Everything that God the Father does will point us to Jesus. The Word declares His Son. Our brokenness points us to our need for the Son. His love wrapped up in the person and the work of His Son shows us how much He loves us. And the question this morning I ask you, have you made that profession of faith in Jesus' saving power? Have you made that profession of faith in God's Son? Do you trust Jesus as your Savior? We cannot be a true disciple of Christ without it. We also see that Christ makes a proclamation as well. We live under the proclamation of Christ about us as his disciple. Not only do we live under the proclamation we've made about Christ, we live under the proclamation that God has made about the Son. We live under a proclamation that God makes about us as his disciple. Look at verse number 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. Now look at that. It says, I say to you that you are Peter. Why does, why does Jesus call Simon Peter? Because Peter was not actually a name that was given to Simon by his parents. It wasn't even a middle name. We see him noted as Simon Peter in the gospels, but this is the very first time that Jesus calls Simon Peter. Earlier in the book of Matthew, he calls him Cephas, which is an Aramaic form of rock. But this is not a name that was given by his parents. This is a name given by Jesus, a nickname given by Jesus to Peter, the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, the actor, but Peter, Simon Peter, the rock, the apostle. What I love about this is that Jesus literally changes Simon's name. Don't miss the significance of that at all. Because when we get saved, when we come to know Jesus Christ, we make that proclamation about Jesus as the Savior. Jesus makes a proclamation about us that we are his and we are never more the same from when we, before we knew Christ. We are not just an enhanced version of ourselves. We're not just some mutated form like in a comic book where we got like some injection of the Spirit of God. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's Christ's proclamation of the disciple. The disciple is not just, it's not, when I got saved, it wasn't just Derek 2.0, Jesus edition. It was Derek alive and living the way God intended through the power of Jesus Christ. That's what the disciple life is. God makes a proclamation about us that we are not our own. We belong to him. We are not orphans. We are adopted into his family. We are no longer slaves. We are set free to serve him Somebody please say amen to this. Let me know you're still awake. It's hard under those masks to tell whether you are. In Scripture, we see people have their names changed a lot. 
Abraham or Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah. Jacob became Israel. And each time God changes a name, he never refers to them in their former name. From this point on, Jesus would never refer to Peter as Simon again. He would always call him Peter. As a disciple of Christ, understand that you have been given a new name and that name will not change. You may not always see you yourself as a faithful disciple, but God sees you through his faithfulness to you as the disciple. Did you catch that? A lot of times we walk with our head held low. We walk in doubt. We walk in shame. We walk in guilt. We walk in all kinds of things because maybe there's some distance between us and God and we've done it because God's not the one who puts distance between us. Understand this. You may not always feel like the disciple, the faithful disciple you need to be, but you will always be God's disciple through his faithfulness to you when you come to him. So a disciple lives in light of a great proclamation. The proclamation of faith that saves us. The proclamation of God the Father. That you can trust God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And the proclamation that you are his at all times. The second this thing this morning and we need to move quickly. This is why I knew we weren't getting through all five points. This passage is deep. Number two. Somebody just said a thank God there didn't they? I heard that. Oh, three parts. Okay, I thought you said, thank God. I'm sorry, I, I, you, that wasn't as bad. Three parts, okay. Not a bad suggestion. I'll take it under advisement. Number two, a disciple lives in possession of great power. It may not always look like it, but as children of God, we have the power. It may not always feel like it. it, may not always seem like it when you look at the news and when you look at public opinion and when you look at all of those things. This is why we keep our eyes on Christ. Keep our eyes on the truth of the word. Keep our eyes on the real image, not the projected image. A power is a power to overcome and to overwhelm evil. In verse number 18, again, look at the latter half of that verse. After he says, I say that you are Peter. After he changes his name, he says, on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus calls Peter the rock in response to the solid faith that he declared. He says that he's going to build his church on the rock of faith that God revealed to his disciples. This is where a lot of people begin to deviate and, and, and discuss what was Jesus really meaning when he said this. This is why that within the Catholic tradition, many will say that Peter was actually the first pope because Jesus was saying that Peter was the foundation of the church. But church, I want to remind you that we cannot have a church that is founded just on a human being. It must be founded upon God himself. Jesus is the rock, the chief cornerstone of the church. Jesus was not saying, Peter, you're the rock that everything's going to be built on. What he was saying is the cornerstone that the church will be built upon is the faith that you have in me as the son of God. It's the faith that all of us have, that saving faith. This is what makes the church grow. This is what builds the church, the faith that we have in Jesus. We live in possession of great power. That great power sometimes doesn't look big. Sometimes it looks real small like a little mustard seed. Because Jesus said if we have faith as tiny as a grain of mustard, I'll make it to where you can move mountains. A disciple lives in possession of great power through faith in Jesus Christ. The rock that Jesus builds his church on is not the person of Peter, but the faith of Peter. That great faith in Christ is what the church is built upon. And today, 
just as in centuries before us. Listen, church, we're not just part of something that's only existed since we've been alive. We're part of a tradition of a body of an institution that God put in place 2,000 plus years ago. And it's global. It's not just in Lexington, Kentucky. It's not just in the United States. It's not just in the Western Hemisphere. It's all over the world. The church remains. Kingdoms rise and fall. People come and go. But the church remains because the rock remains Jesus Christ. And faith in Jesus is what makes our church tick. We must understand that what we do here is not just have a nice little Christian production on Sunday mornings that we come to and we get a little supercharge of feeling good about ourselves and then go to brunch. We're part of the kingdom of God. This church, the church of Jesus Christ, is an outpost, an embassy of heaven here on earth. And we have been called, as Paul says in Ephesians, into spiritual warfare. And we wage war, not with guns and swords, we wage war with faith and love. We wage war with the love of Jesus, fueled by faith in Jesus, so that rock that Peter had, that rock-hard faith. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you live in possession of great power that is able to withstand the evil that is all around us every day. And in full transparency this morning, I have to tell you, this point right here is where I'm at personally in my life right now. And I've had to been holding on to it for a little while because I have found it all too easy in our current climate, to look around at all the darkness and all the brokenness and all the evil that we see spattered across the news around our world, and it is heavy sometimes. It is heavy. And if, here's the thing. If you can live in all the brokenness that's around us without being affected by it, you're a lucky person. And here's the other thing, and I don't want to sound too judgmental, but you don't have need of a cardiologist because if you can live without being affected and it not wearing on you, you don't have a heart. To see COVID and all of the effects that are taking place. To see churches in our community lose their pastors. We know what that's like within the history of our church, right? To see that and see the pain that people go through losing their loved ones or struggling and having long-term effects of that and then all the fights and all the things that are taking place. To see all that going on and it not weigh on us. To see Afghanistan and what's taking place there. Soldiers just days from coming home don't make it. Afghans who thought that life was getting better, that good life only to see the rug pulled out from under them and not knowing what tomorrow may bring. Believers, missionaries, churches in that area forced to go underground and being told we will hunt you down. Things in Haiti, the earthquakes, the tropical storms, the hurricanes that swirl off of our borders and our beaches to see injustice of all kinds going on around the world and sometimes in our very own neighborhoods. It's enough to weigh down even the most hard-hearted person. And I'll be honest, it weighs me down a lot. And it causes me sometimes to forget the power that I possess in Jesus. The power that I have in him to know that he's still in control of everything, even when it may not look like it. See, this is where next Sunday, you gotta be back because you gotta see the other side. But you know what I found? That Jesus is always working. He's always working in everything. I found that the time I spend with the Son has always resulted in more faith and more strength. Nevertheless, 
nevertheless. It has always led to greater faith and quiet, peaceful strength and confidence if I will be quiet and just let God speak. If I will just let God speak. If I will just hear him out. Next week we're going to see as Peter begins to argue with Jesus about Jesus' plan and what has to take place. If Peter would have just remained quiet and heard Jesus out, he would have been better off. You see, it's a power that can overcome the evil in this world. Romans tells us not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. We overcome that by keeping our eyes upon him. It's a power that we possess that overwhelms the evil that's all around us. But lastly, as we get ready to close, it's a power in line with the agenda of heaven. It's a power that is in line with the agenda of heaven. Look at verse number 19. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, I will have, been, will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Jesus tells Peter, he's handing him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Immediately, because of where I am in my life right now, that was a picture all too real to me. Because I've had a scenario just a few months ago where I handed keys to my car to my daughter for the first time. Okay? Got her permit, and I said, here you go. Do you, parents have been where I'm at. Parents that are, that's, you have no idea the, 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 like the complete mind-blowing moment that is when you hand the keys and say, here you go. I'm putting my life in your hands. Oh, my gosh. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. The keys are significant here because the keys in the ancient context always signaled authority and trust. People walked around with keys to the kingdom's storerooms and the storehouses. They trusted them not to take from it. They trusted them not to misuse it or abuse it or to misuse the access that they have. See, Jesus wasn't saying, here, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. It's yours. Take it like I told my daughter when I said, here, I'm taking the keys of the kingdom and you can drive us wherever you want to. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the keys, meaning I trust you and I'm giving you access and is saying, don't abuse it. The keys to the kingdom are not, some, are not something to take lightly. Here's the keys to the kingdom, folks, for us. We have the keys to the kingdom as well and it's the gospel. The keys to the kingdom... What gives us access to the kingdom of God is the gospel message. In this generation, we've been given the responsibility of wielding those keys with integrity and with faithfulness. To not water down the gospel, to not modify it, to not change it, but to preach it and to teach it and to take it with love and faith and fervency and urgency. I wonder sometimes how well we wield those keys. How well we wield that key. The gospel is what gives us access to the kingdom of God. And then we see what will be bound in heaven and bound in earth and loosed in heaven and loosed on earth. What this really comes down to is the power that we have, the work that we do, the ministry that we do as disciples must always be in line with the agenda of heaven. Because if we bear the family name, if we say, I'm serving Jesus, it's hard to say I'm a disciple of Christ and I'm always working in opposition of Christ. Many times we can do that. <clears throat> Many times we can take our ideas and our ideology and let that lead us instead of the faithful teachings of the word of God. Sometimes I think we forget just how much power we have as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes, let me actually rephrase that. Sometimes I think that we forget just how powerful our Jesus is. Okay? It's not even about our power. It's the power of Jesus that we're tapped into, that we have access to, that our relationship gains us access to that great power. It's a power that overwhelms the darkness. It's a power that overwhelms evil. It's the power to speak the truth of the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. And it's the power to love others when love is not easy. It's the power to continue in faith when everything around you screams, give up. That's the disciple life. It may not look juicy, it may not look shiny, but that's the disciple life. And underneath all of that real, the reality is the reality that that life is built upon a great proclamation of great faith in a great Savior. And it gives us access to great power and a great work to do with that power. The disciple life is not easy, but the disciple life is totally worth it. It's totally worth it. I just wanted, and that's what this morning I prayed on the way over here. I just, God, just let this message encourage the church the way it has encouraged me to prepare it this week. Because I needed it. Desperately. We have to be careful to use those keys that we've been given in the proper way so that when we, when we put those keys in the kingdom and we preach the gospel, we swing wide the gates of heaven rather than the gates of doubt and not understanding who Jesus really is. To preach a clear message. That's why I think this is a good stopping point this morning as we consider kind of what the word has spoken to us this morning. So as we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, I'll be the first to admit this is not the most eloquent message I've ever, I've ever delivered. It's not the most well-plotted uh, message or outline I've ever put together. But I can tell you this. It spoke a lot to me this week. And I pray that it speaks to you and I pray that you come to know that whatever image you have or whatever idea you have of what it means to be a follower of Christ, I hope that Jesus blows that out of the water with something even greater. I hope he does. I hope for our church. He teaches us that, yeah, things may be difficult. Things may be hard to understand or know which steps to take sometimes. We may not be sure about what tomorrow may bring. We know who holds tomorrow. And we know what he offers us every day, new mercy. Perfectly appointed for what we need. How good is God? So this morning I've spoken mostly to believers, but I want to ask you this morning, if you don't know Christ, let today be the day. Let today be the day you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He asked that same question that he asked of Peter 2,000 years ago. That's a question that is asked of all of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say he's your savior? Are you ready to say that he's your savior? If today's the day of salvation, come today. Let's talk about that. Or before you leave today, grab somebody and say, hey, I want to talk about my faith. I have questions. I, I, I want to follow Jesus or I have questions about how to follow him. And I have questions about all of these things. Let's talk. Let's get this settled. But believer, follower, Christian, how well are we following? Have we been following in faith, understanding the power that we have, or have we been following just with our eyes everywhere else, listening to everybody else's opinion of who Jesus is, instead of looking at the Word of God and who God proclaims Him to be? And have we been letting that affect who we think we are in Christ, instead of who Jesus proclaims us to be? 
Father, I pray this morning that you'll have your way in our time of invitation and response. Move in our hearts, in Jesus' name, as we stand today. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.